This morning's Bible reading is taken from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 to 24, and uh, may be found on page 1091 in your Bibles. That's um, Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own languages? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perigia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages, tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, 
because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ken. Good morning. How are you going? Good. Great to be with you this morning. Um, 390 years ago yesterday, 390 years ago yesterday, the King of Sweden launched what was at the time the world's most high-tech warship. The king was in the middle of three different wars and he wanted the mother of all ships for his fleet. He commissioned it to be built in 1626 and ignoring the advice of his shipbuilder, he sped up the production time, he added in new levels and he equipped it with more cannons than had ever been on a warship in its day. History records it as one of the Swedish Navy's biggest achievements and one of the most spectacular warships ever built. The Vasa was a vast, beautifully decorated ship. It was covered in wooden carvings that told the stories of the Swedish royal family. It carried, like I mentioned, an unprecedented 64 bronze cannons able to propel 16 kilogram cannonballs through not just one hull of the enemy ship, but both hulls of an enemy ship, something that had never been done before. It was mid-afternoon on Sunday, the 10th of August, 1628, and at last it was time. After many delays and frustrations, the newly fitted out Vasa was anchored below the castle with its cannons finally on board and the crew manning their stations. The quay was packed with onlookers and the water teemed with small boats carrying people who wanted to watch the mighty war machine slip off its moorings and into the harbour. The crew had been allowed to bring their families as it was the ship's maiden voyage. Hopes were high as people bid farewell or followed the ship from the quay. A small gust filled the sails of the Vasa and the ship heeled to port and slowly recovered. As the ship passed the gap in the bluffs, a much stronger gust pushed the ship so far over on its port side that water began to pour in through the open gun ports on the lower gun deck and the Vasa began to sink. Not even 20 minutes after leaving shore, it was 32 metres below resting in Davy Jones's locker. The sinking of Vasa took place nowhere near an enemy. Engineering problems sank the ship. It didn't help that the king rushed the process. But if anything good has come from this PR disaster for the Swedish Navy, it's that it became a boon for archaeologists when it was discovered some 300 years later. And is now, I am told, a very interesting museum piece to visit. I was struck last week when we read Acts chapter 1 by the command of Jesus to his disciples, which was, do not leave Jerusalem until you've received the gift that my Father has promised. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait until you receive the gift my Father has promised. And I thought to myself, how serious was he about not leaving Jerusalem? I'm a runner, and I would have thought, Jerusalem's going to, it's a small city, 
I'd like to just do a lap around Jerusalem you know, one day. Is that okay? Can I go visit my friends in the next village? Is this arbitrary? Do not leave, but wait. You know, I'm happy to wait. I understand the importance of that, but do not leave. How serious was he about that? And as I reflected on this, I thought to myself, actually, I think Jesus was pretty serious. Because he knew that without God's Spirit in them, his disciples, his church, were as good as the Vassa, underprepared and improperly equipped for their mission. He knew that without God's Spirit in them, they could not live the life that he had called them to. John Stott, the theologian, puts it like this. He says, As a body without breath... I'm going to read it so I get it right. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. That is what this passage, Acts chapter 2, is about. It's about God giving the promised gift of His Spirit to His people so that they might live the new life He has called them to and have everything they need to do the mission God has called them to. Without God's Spirit, the church would have sunk. The story would have ended in the first century, only to be uncovered perhaps by archaeologists some years later and perhaps put in a museum if people thought that was interesting. But because God has put his spirit in his church and in his people, it has sailed on around the world, unstoppable and unsinkable for some 2,000 years, even coming as far as Australia. This morning, uh, with you, the question I want to ask is, what's it look like for God's church to be properly prepared and properly equipped for the mission that God's called us to? What's it mean for you to be properly prepared and properly equipped to live the life that God has called you to? And the answer is, you need to be filled with God's Spirit. Because otherwise, you'll sink. You'll fail at your mission. That's how important this is. You need to be filled with God's Spirit because then you will have, and here are my three points for you this morning, God's presence in your life, God's power in your life and God's purpose in your life. You need to be filled with God's Spirit because only then you can have God's presence with you, God's power with you and God's purpose. You need God's Spirit in your life. So, number one, you need God's presence in your life. You need God's Spirit in your life because you need God's presence in your life in order to be able to live the life, the new life He has called you to. Pentecost, this moment, is a monumental occasion for the church. There are many different stories in the Bible about various different things. This one is a turning point for the church because it's about a new development in the way that we relate to God and the way that God relates to us. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you might want to read it um, as I say it. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Pentecost is obviously already a significant day in the life of God's people, in the Jewish people. Uh, 
Pentecost was one of three annual Jewish holidays. It was the beginning of that holiday. Um, And it is about a number of different things. But most significantly for us today, Pentecost was a historical celebration. It celebrated something that had happened in the past. Pente uh, is the Greek number for 50. And what the Jews believed was that 50 days after leaving Egypt and their slavery in Egypt, 50 days after was the day that God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. And that's a monumental moment for Israel because it's at that moment that they know how to live the way that God has called them to live. They've received God's law. And that backdrop helps us understand what this new day of Pentecost is all about. And the people in the moment, and indeed Luke's readers before us, would have been savvy to the significance of that backdrop. Because what it meant was was the fulfillment of a new promise, that of a new kind of relationship with God, where not only would people have God's law, but they'd also have the power to do it. Not only would they have God's law, but they would their operating system would be changed in such a way that they would be able to do God's law. The promise uh, comes up again and again in the Old Testament. Let me give you just two passages. Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They will be my people. God's talking about a new kind of relationship with him, where he is living in them. Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The day of Pentecost is that moment where God gives people a new heart and he writes his law on their heart so that not only can they know what God wants, but they've also got the desire now to live out how God wants them to live. Um, As you might be aware, last year was the 50th anniversary of uh, when the incredibly influential American evangelist Billy Graham came to town, came to Australia. And he's probably best remembered for his message of forgiveness, of Christ's forgiveness, as the great spiritual need that everybody has. I happened to pick up his book on the Holy Spirit in my preparation this week. And in the introduction, that's as far as I got, uh, because I found something that was helpful. Um, He said, every human being actually has two great spiritual needs. The first is forgiveness. The second is goodness. And I think what his point is, is that not only do we desire uh, peace with God, We desire and forgiveness from God, but we desire to be able to live in a way that we think God would be stoked about. We desire to to live out our potential, to to live good lives. Listening to the ABC around that time, I heard him cop a lot of flack about the ethical teaching that came with his message of forgiveness. Um, But as I reflect on it now, I think actually that desire to live for a good cause is something that all of us have and to do good in the world to leave the world a better place than what we found it to be better people 
is a desire deep inside of us. And here's the thing. The coming of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost enables us not only to receive God's forgiveness in a special way, but then to have His Spirit to be able to walk in this new way of life, to live good lives pleasing to God. So that you know I'm not making this up, have a look at verse 14 of chapter 2. I love that this is one of those Bible passages that's very, very rare where it says there's something kind of that happens and then somebody says, let, let me explain it to you. Super helpful for the preacher. Peter says, let me explain this to you, verse 14. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. That's what is happening. I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Sons and daughters, young and old, servants, men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. What's so significant about that? In the past, some particular people at particular times, in particular places, had received God's spirit and were able to do godly things. But the spirit being poured out at Pentecost means that he's poured out on all people so that you can have God's presence in your life. How do you live out a new life? How do you do what God has called you to do? How do you obey God? How are you properly equipped, properly prepared for this mission God's called you to by God's spirit, which is God's presence at work in your life? You miss out uh, when you don't go to the 8 a.m. service every Sunday. I know you already know that. But let me give you another reason why you miss out. Each Sunday, the first thing we pray together as a church at 8 a.m., the minister stands up there and he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And we all pray together. We say, Lord, have mercy on us and write your law on our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That's a great prayer, not just for a Sunday, but maybe that's a prayer you can pray every day for God's Spirit to fill your life so that he might write his law on your hearts and you might be changed. Um, I'm adding in more for you today, 9.30, all right? Um, But I'm also cutting other bits out. Uh, I was speaking to Evie Chase the other Sunday morning after church. I asked her what she got up to. Evie's eight years old, Matt and Michelle's daughter. Eight, nine years old? Nine years old. And um, I asked her what she got up to in her holidays. And she said she did a coding course, you know, and I had to, like, think about that. And I was like, oh, computer coding. That's what she means in her holidays. And I thought, if she's not going to be the next Prime Minister of Australia, she's certainly going to be the next CEO of Google. You know, that's the kind of... That's Evie. I thought, but the Holy Spirit in your life is God's presence in your life in such a way that he transforms your desires. He rewrites the coding in your software so that you can act differently. He changes the programming so that you can perform differently. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The second point I've got, and I'm already almost halfway through it. The second point is you need God's Spirit in your life because 
You need God's power in your life. And the first point is that um, the reason you need God's power is because you need to be able to change yourself. And that's what we're talking about here. God's Spirit enables God's people to carry out God's mission given to them. And the first way he does that is by allowing you to change yourself. Why is that significant? In a spirit of honesty, I want to tell you this morning, I did not want to preach this sermon, this passage of Acts 2. I did everything in my power to make sure that Chris was rostered for today. (laughs) And somehow that didn't happen. And I think God knows what he was up to. Uh, Because what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4, if you're following what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit... Um, is a loaded issue, and it's something I've been thinking about for about 15 years quite seriously. And the question that I started thinking about in my early 20s was this question. What does it mean for the Spirit to be in my life? What's the Spirit's job in Matt's straw? And what should I expect the Spirit to be doing in the lives of all other believers? And I remember, you know, I had a DVD from a a big Pentecostal preacher in the States. I had a a commentary from an evangelical. I had my Bible open. I'd be reading. I'd be listening. I'd be praying. I'd be thinking. Um, What's his job? And what became clear to me through the New Testament, through the Bible, was that the main role of the Spirit was to transform my life was to put it simply and and profoundly, was to make me more like Jesus. Why? Because God wants me to become more like Christ because it's good for me, but also because having billions of little Jesuses all around the world and even 200 at a little church in Willoughby will give a, a whole lot of glory to God as people see how good Jesus is as he's scattered around the planet. And so our lives are the primary way in which the Spirit empowers us to show people how good He is, to get on with the mission of God. It happens just through our lives. But I want you to notice two other quick things in this passage as well. Verse 4 says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. What's happening here is actually as straightforward as it is miraculous. The Spirit gives followers of Jesus um, languages, that real languages that they didn't know beforehand. He gives them those languages um, so that people who were gathered for this festival in Jerusalem at the time, who spoke different languages, could hear in their own language about Jesus. That's what is happening in this moment. I think there's two very cool things about that. One is, not only does the Spirit transform our lives so that we can show the character of Christ in our life, but He gives His church gifts. He gives the church spiritual gifts to enable us to declare the wonders of God. And all through Acts, uh, you see different kinds of gifts. You see people given words to speak about Jesus. You see um, people given power to do acts of service. Um, and, and miracles and signs and wonders, you see that. Um, and obviously, in other parts of the Bible, it talks about gifts for his church, even today, that we might uh, point people to the glory of God. The other thing in this passage is that God gives his church boldness to go out and tell people about Jesus. 
Um, this, you, remember, this is 50 days, pretty much, maybe it's 53 days after um, the death of Jesus. And what happened on that day was that Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, denied Jesus three times and ran away from Jesus. Just a month and a half later, we kind of are, maybe two months and anyone reading the story of him now and watching him stand up in front of two, 3,000 people and back Jesus, you'd have to think, this is a different guy, a different Peter. We've got, we don't have his surname. It must be a different guy. But it's the same Peter. And in the words of one commentator, the big point to see in this passage about the effect of the Spirit is that after the phenomenon, after the Spirit arrives, the disciples move out to the streets. I like that. After the Spirit arrives, the disciples move out to the streets. They're in, they're in an upper room, Spirit arrives, and then they're given a boldness to go out. And so you need God's Spirit in your life because you need God's power in your life. And here's an amazing thought. Just as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus himself when John baptised him, so that he entered his public ministry, full of the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit, so now the same Spirit has come upon the disciples of Jesus for their mission in the world. What an encouragement to think that the same Spirit that was upon Jesus to do what he did is in us so that we can do what God calls us to do. How are you properly prepared, properly equipped? You need God's spirit in you, which is God's power in you to live a transformed, enabled, and emboldened life. Okay, the last thing to say this morning on uh, this passage is that you need God's spirit in your life in order to have God's purpose in your life, in order to be about God's purpose in the world. I have loved watching countless hours of documentaries on Apollo 11 uh, this year as we celebrate 50 years since the lunar landing. And one of, um, when the astronauts came back, they had all those press conferences. And in one of the press conferences, one of the astronauts, Michael Collins, said this. He said, I really believe that if the political leaders of the world could see their planet from a distance of, let's say, 100,000 miles, their outlook would be fundamentally changed. The all-important border would be invisible, the noisy argument suddenly silenced. The tiny globe would continue to turn, serenely ignoring its subdivisions, presenting a unified facade that would cry out for a unified understanding and for homogeneous treatment. I love how um, we, we have this desire, don't we, for a unified world, for peace on earth. I can tell you this, all, most political leaders in the world have seen the world from 100,000 miles above, and nothing's changed. Only when we are one under Jesus will there be unified understanding and homogeneous treatment. Only when Jesus Christ is Lord of all, only when he is treated as king, will there be unity. God's purpose for our world is that Jesus will be king for everyone and everything. 
And that might sound very hierarchical and autocratic to our ears, but properly understood, it's what we all want when we consider that only when Jesus is Lord will we have something like global, national and domestic peace. There's that story at the beginning of the Bible um, where God has given humanity the responsibility of caring for the whole world. And he says, just one thing I ask of you, just, you've got to obey me, you've got to do this thing my way. He says, I'll be king, remember, and you'll just be my vice-regents. You'll rule on my behalf, remember that. And anyway, you know, humanity quickly fail at doing that. They disobey God, the world um, unravels, and as it's coming undone, humanity all get together for this moment. It's the Tower of Babel story. They all get together and they say, let's try and do this thing without God. Let's, let's try and be our own king, in a way. Let's be independent of him. And God comes down to see what they're doing, and in effect, he gives them their independence. And at that moment, the Bible says that he confuses their languages and he scatters them all over the face of the earth. Very quickly, the very next passage is that famous passage to Abraham where God says, don't worry, through you the whole world will be blessed. I'll fix this problem of this scattering and this confusion and this um, global discord. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, shows us the reversal of Babel and the reversal of the curse and the fulfillment of that promise that God would bring us all back together and make us one. Instead of languages being confused, we see languages understood. Instead of people being scattered, we see people gathered. And when they ask, what does this mean? Peter just says, it means Jesus is Lord. This is is what happens when people treat Jesus as king. There's unity, there's peace, there's oneness in the world. Pentecost is is proof that that promise has been fulfilled, that Jesus is Lord. To have God's Spirit in your life, then, is to wake up to the fact that Jesus is Lord. And when you're alive to that truth, you can be a part of God's plan and purpose, a part of showing how good it is to be under Jesus' Lordship and to start living and working and doing and being in his kingdom. In conclusion, let me end really quickly. The news that we have a new rector is wonderful news. And I have met him. We've had coffee. I've met him a few times. He is a great guy. You're going to love him. And a new rector, and especially Prash, can help us in many ways. He can lead us, he can help us get organized, he can set vision for the church, he can lead our team, he can start new things, he can continue the good work that's happened here. But the church is still alive without a rector. The church would be as good as a ship on the bottom of the ocean floor without the Spirit. He, the Spirit, who came at Pentecost and continues to live in the lives of believers, people who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one who gives us God's presence, who makes us powerful, enables us to do God's mission, and makes us a part of God's purpose in the world. Let me pray that we'd be continued to be filled with God's Spirit.
Holy Spirit, fill your church afresh. Make us like Christ. Give us everything we need to be your people. Help us to proclaim Jesus as Lord, even in Willoughby today. Amen.